Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 204 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Kate O'Neill, whose big focus is the future of meaningful human experiences in an increasingly tech-driven world. Now, Salisa, you were the one who got to speak with Kate. What do you and she talk about? Kate is known as the Tech Humanist, and her latest book is in fact called Tech Humanist. And so, as you might imagine, we talk about what tech humanism is. We talk about emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and extended reality and about analytics. And we talk about the blurring of lines as online and offline experiences have come to increasingly influence one another. And then on a more philosophical level, we also talk about how meaning may be the distinctive quality of humans and how learning, of course, is about meaning making. All right. And I want to know what reflection questions you have to offer to go along with this episode. But while you're thinking about that, I'll remind you, dear listener, that the reflection questions are available as part of the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 204. And you might consider the reflection questions on your own after listening to an episode and or you might pull your team together using part or all of the podcast episode for a group discussion. So now, Salisa, what do you suggest folks listen for during this episode? First, listen to how Kate ties technology to business and how she suggests that we need to understand technology through the lens of business. And then after the episode, think about what your learning business is trying to do at scale and then think about how technology might help. Second, Kate talks about the fact that learners are humans too. And I know that can sound like a a flippant statement, but it actually has some pretty profound implications. So after the episode, think about how you view those people that you serve and are you too focused on learner experience and not focused enough on the human experience? Excellent points to keep in mind and particularly that that second one for me because I feel like as machine learning has become more and more widespread, there's been a lot of focus you know, through approaches like automation and personalization on making human learning much more efficient and and kind of machine-like in in some instances. So, you know, focusing on the human and what makes us human is incredibly relevant right now for learning businesses. So let's get going with the interview with Kate O'Neill. Hello, and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Salisa Steele, and today I'm joined by Kate O'Neill, 
also known as the tech humanist. Kate has led innovations across technology, marketing, and operations for more than 20 years in companies from startups to Fortune 500s. She's a keynote speaker and a prolific writer. Her latest book, Tech Humanist, How You Can Make Technology Better for Business and Better for Humans, came out in late 2018. She focuses on the future of meaningful human experiences in an increasingly tech-driven future. Kate, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you, and thanks for having me. So before we dive in in earnest, um, what, beyond my brief intro, would you like listeners to know about you and your work? Oh, that's a really good uh, brief intro. I always have trouble keeping it brief. So uh, one, I guess one way I like to say what I do is that I help humanity prepare for an increasingly data and tech-driven future, since we are, I think, going to find ourselves in that, that sort of future. And I think we need to understand what that's going to look like. Well, so that is at the the core of of what you do, and you know, I mentioned the the book Tech Humanist. I mentioned that you also identify as as a tech humanist. So maybe mm-hmm. let's just start there. Um, what is tech humanism? So tech humanist, the book, and and sort of my overall philosophy uh, is is about the relationship between technology and humanity, and it's through the lens of business because I argue that that's really the main vehicle for putting technology in humanity's path. We could talk all day about technology in the abstract or how technology changes human experience, which I think is also very interesting. But I think the ways to, um, to really focus on changing human experience or making it more meaningful, which is ultimately what I strive to do, it needs to go through business paths. And that's, uh, so th- that's the model that I propose within the book. And that's a lot of what my speaking is about. And my advising with companies is about uh, helping companies use technology in a way that actually prepares them for the future so that they can be more successful, but also creates more meaningful experiences for the humans that do business with them or that work inside the company as well. Well, and you're already getting into it, I think, in just that little bit that you shared there. But, you know, you really emphasize meaning in the work that you do. And and I know that you posit that um, that may be the distinctive quality of humans, that we crave meaning. And um, and it occurred to me when I was uh, reading the Tech Humanist that, that you know, learning is about meaning making um, and that it's about a learner internalizing a skill or knowledge enough that then she can do something with that. Um, now, you don't, you don't talk specifically about meaning in terms of learning, but you do talk about it in terms of business, which you just emphasized, um, you know, where it, it manifests itself as, as strategy or in art, where it kind of um, greater meaning comes from approaching great truths and all of that. So, you know, if we look at meaning in that context of business um, and that it is what gives a business strategic purpose, um, maybe unpack that a little bit and tell us, you know, what, what is strategic purpose and, and what is its role in guiding organizations' use of technology? Sure. And I, I love that observation about the relationship between meaning and learning, because I, I do argue that I think there there really is uh, no meaning, or I guess as this comes back to, you know, sort of your guiding philosophy and religion enters into the discussion at this point too, but where you start the meaning discussion is uh, what that comes down to. And for me, meaning starts from uh, not 
a political agenda or a religious affiliation. It's just the simple premise that humanity is important and our human experiences are important. So the the idea that meaning is what we construct and what we create is uh, is that opportunity to observe the world around us and see what makes sense and how we are going to uh, to use that to to make decisions around us. So learning absolutely seems like it is part and parcel of of that discussion. But yeah, I like to point out that meaning takes a lot of different shapes. And uh, it's been a study of mine for a few decades, actually. So I was a linguist by education. And I just came by it naturally that I, I always got interested in the, the layers of meaning in a sense. There's the semantic discussion, of course, that we have within that sort of linguistic territory, which is, you know, how much um, nuance are we packing into the words we say? And, you know, what are we really trying to communicate with the, the language that we use? But on top of that, we're also talking about things like, uh, you know, purpose and truths and significance and all the way out, you know, if you take that into layers farther removed from uh, the immediate human experience, it's it's bigger things like uh, cosmic meaning and existential meaning, like what are we doing, what is it all about, what, why are we here, and all of those things still fundamentally come down to this very uh, complex idea that we carry around called meaning. And I find that, you know, since business is a human construct, we really need to understand what business is for. Uh, it, you know, if, if we're, if, if, if meaning is a human, um, the most human premise or, or the most human instinct, then creating business has to have some kind of meaning inspiring it. And I find that the way that, that meaning takes shape within business is purpose. It's that whole notion of why does the business exist? What is it trying to do, to achieve? What is it doing at scale? And so strategic purpose is really about the idea that you get close to why the business even exists at all. You know, and I, I joke sometimes like, you know, what's the difference between what you're doing and, you know, selling businesses out, the, sorry, sorry, selling pizzas out the back door, you know, because if you, if it's all just about making money, if it's all just about generating revenue, you could do anything. You could sell pencils on the street, but there's something that your business is doing that's supposed to be solving a problem. It's supposed to be addressing an issue. It's supposed to be all shaped around some premise. And usually that, that has some relationship to like the origin story of the company, uh, why it got founded, or it has something to do with the culture, like why everybody kind of gravitates to this place and what they all have in common. But in general, that strategic purpose is, uh, is a really important thing for, for companies to have their, their handle on, their, you know, the corporate leaders to have their, their hands on and their, a sense of, because it can then guide the decisions that get made every day. It can then guide you know, priorities and values and, and um, re resource allocation. And when that comes to that resource allocation, that's where we come back to the technology discussion because so much of what happens within the area of digital transformation or of technological prioritization or projects that get assigned are tech-led, not human-led. They're led by whatever is trending in the headlines. So, you know, a, a CEO and CTO might be having a discussion about, you know, what's our AI strategy, as opposed to what is it that we're trying to do at scale, and how could AI or some other technology help us achieve that? 
So I think that's just so important for that lens to be the, the, the strategic purpose lens to be the one that business leaders and really organizational leaders of any kind take when they're trying to solve problems within the organization, think about how technology fits within the organization, how they're going to use data to help them be more informed as they make decisions, rather than allow technology on its own to shape those decisions. Yeah, so it, the strategic purpose really helps us uh, realize that technology is a means to an end and that that the end being um, what it gets encapsulated in that strategic purpose. And one of the things that uh, you point out is that you know the strategic purpose, which is so 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 important, usually is actually needs to be distilled down to something very simple, right? Right, right, exactly. There's there's um, I think a tendency for people to hear when I when I talk about strategic purpose, there tends to be this uh, association that people have with, oh yeah, we've got that, and they'll say whatever their mission statement or vision statement is, and so often. These are these kind of paragraph-long behemoths <laughs> that are full of um, very vague language that <laughs> doesn't really lead to like, you know, we're going to be the best in the world at blah, 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 and solve these problems for our customers, blah, blah, blah. And those can be really helpful in certain contexts, I guess. I actually don't know what those <laughs> contexts would be, I suppose, but they may be. Uh, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a, a, a strategic purpose statement should be something that is as concise as hopefully three to five words, maybe seven at most. You're really getting down to something that's a really essential uh, distillation of what it is the company does, what problem it solves, what it exists to do. And I love, I always come back to the the sort of perfect distillation uh, statement, strategic purpose statement is Disney theme parks and their three-word, create magical experiences. And so anyone who's ever been to a Disney theme park knows that that's a very truthful strategic purpose statement for them. You know, there is an awful lot of emphasis on creating that magical experience. There's so much wrapped up in their brand and their culture around that. But what I think is most important and significant for this tech humanist discussion when it comes to that is that you can really see how that three word create magical experiences, that three word strategic purpose can also allow them to make a digital transformation investment decision like the my magic band program, which is the wearables that people get when they go to the park and those wearables track people's location throughout the park and they contain within them payment information and room access information and all kinds of other stuff that makes those wearables make the park experience totally seamless and feel truly magical Mm. to people. So that's a very easy investment to justify, even though it's a billion dollars to to have gotten the infrastructure in place and make that program work. It's a very easy investment to justify because it so perfectly aligns with what that company exists to do and is trying to do at scale. Wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing that example because I think that anytime you know we can take kind of a, a nebulous concept like you know mm-hmm. strategic purpose and right. then you know boil it down to those three words and then show as you just did how it can justify major tech investments. That's very helpful. Um, so I, I'm going to ask you about you know when you're thinking about emerging and developing technologies, and I'm thinking th- about things like artificial intelligence and uh, mixed and virtual reality blockchain, 
whatever else might come to your mind. But when you think about some of those emerging technologies, what do you see as the most critical issues and decisions um, facing those of us working to provide learning, um, or maybe just even humans in general, but if you can add that learning lens to it too, that would be fantastic. Sure. Yeah. I think the big thing, you know, when we talk about learners or or in learning, it's still humans, right? We're still talking about humans through that lens of, of learning and in that context of learning. So it still comes back to, you know, what is the, the broader human experience here? And I think the, the thing that occurs to me about all the emerging and developing and exponential technologies that, that are uh, big topics, critical topics right now, it's unintended consequences that really uh, jumps out at me as the, the main thing that we need to be thinking about. Because the, the chances for these technologies to increase capacity and scale are like never before. So whatever we are going to put in place to advance our agendas to, you know, to try to help build uh, our mission out into more exponential uh, impact, it's going to be able to be done much more readily with these technologies. But we have to be that much more aware that whatever we're doing is going to scale. So all of the unintended consequences (laughs) are going to scale right along with it. Mm. Uh, So I think that's, it's, it becomes so much more important to think about the learner experience, but about what, you know, beyond learner to this more holistic human context, what context are people bringing with them? What, what baggage, what real life experiences are people bringing into the moment that they're having an interaction or transaction? Like as a learner, you know, are they coming from a background where they are also a parent? Are they also commuting? Are they also, you know, what are the things that are happening in their real lives that affect them as a human before they enter that context of a learner. And the the unintended consequences of what we put in front of them with the technology may create additional burden on them, or it may create situations where they're not given the best opportunity to learn, to be themselves, to be fully present in uh, in the interactions that we create because we aren't thinking of them as holistic humans. And, and yet we're creating technology, technologically driven experiences that inevitably trickle over into their non-learner human lives, right? Like they're, they're going to have access to uh, learning experiences that maybe they're going to access on their phones or on smart watches or in some kind of um, maybe even non-interface voice way or something like that. And those types of experiences are going to not be like um, limited to a traditional classroom setting. They're not going to be limited to contexts in which people are only wearing their learner hat at that moment. So we need to be very mindful of how those experiences follow people into their non-learning human roles and contexts. Uh, So those kinds of things are going to be really much more difficult to design for and to scale for and to like really build out meaningfully. But I think the more we put ourselves in that that state of thinking as holistically as we can about meaningful human experiences and really thinking uh, about um, the people that we interact with as whole humans, that's where the whole diversity and inclusion discussion comes into play most um, organically, because it, it really does help us to think about uh, moving beyond a, a sort of homogenous view of what 
any given person in that learner role is experiencing. You have to think about a, a range of ages and a range of uh, living conditions and a range of um, abilities and a range of everything. It has to be a very diverse, accessible, inclusive kind of experience or else you're leaving out a, a good portion of people. So that's that's the big thing I think that in the in the learning context especially, we need to be really mindful of. So be thinking holistically and, and try to uh, be aware of those unintended consequences, try to, I guess, uh, see those or anticipate those to the extent that, that we can so that we do include as many learners as possible. Exactly. And, you know, I think this is one of those places where it becomes just so obvious that building out more diverse and inclusive teams for developing technology, mm. for developing our work product is going to benefit us in terms of how what we offer to our customers or to our learners is going to work. You know, so the the more uh, diverse and inclusive our our um, our own project teams are, the more successfully they're going to be received by people that are supposed to be the customer or or um, user of them. Yeah, that's an excellent point, and and that is one of those places where we have some agency, right? We can we can um, mm-hmm. actually look at the team and make sure that it is um, as diverse as possible, and then hopefully reap the benefits of those uh, added perspectives and viewpoints. Yeah, it's just I think it's so easy to overlook viewpoints that are not your own, and until you, and even when you have trained yourself to do better at it, it's still easy to overlook them. So it just it's easier, I think, if you just <laughs> include more diverse perspectives uh, along the way, and then you know it becomes a more natural process that you're you're already thinking about what does this look like for somebody who's uh, let's say a single mom who's commuting while she's listening to an audio program that's supposed to provide education? Or what does this look like for um, someone who is uh, having to uh, interact with something via audio as opposed to on text uh, because maybe they, they don't have the site to be able to read the text? Um, you know, just a lot of considerations like that become a lot easier to, to um, include if you have people who are naturally representing those viewpoints or have a better chance of representing those viewpoints so that you can design for them. If you're looking for a partner to help you design better for your learners, check out our sponsor. Authentic Learning Labs is an e-learning company that offers products and services to help improve your current investments in education. One key product is Authentic Analytics, a dedicated suite of visualization reports to help analyze and predict the performance of education programs. Organizations use Authentic Analytics to easily scan through volumes of data in intuitive visuals, chart performance trends, and quickly spot opportunities, issues, and potential future needs. Find out more at leadinglearning.com authentic. And now, back to the interview as Salisa asks Kate about her people-centered take on analytics. Well, so we're already talking about people, um, and one of the things that you assert that I find really interesting is that you say that analytics are people. And so maybe for listeners, if you'll just kind of unpack that statement, what do you mean by that when you say analytics are, are people? And then maybe tease out some of the implications of that assertion, again, for those of us providing learning. Yeah, so it's a it's a phrase that I've been using for a while because I, I found that when, as analytics began to become a, a dominant subject in business and and other fields, um, you know, maybe a, a decade or so ago, 
so many people began to talk about analytics in this very abstract way. Like you're looking at your data, you're looking at your reports. And it was never about what those data, what those reports, what those analytics are supposed to tell you about the people whose behavior that they're tracking. And I just think it's a really important thing to step beyond the abstractions of analytics and data and reports and so on. And remember that what generates the majority of those, of what we're looking at there, are people and people's intentions, the behavior that they make, uh, that they, they exhibit when they interact with, let's say, a website or uh, purchase behavior or uh, movement behavior, like the kind of thing that, that um, something, a sensor in a store might pick up or something like that. Uh, all of the things that we look at in abstract numbers and graphs and things like that generally are at, at no more than a degree usually removed from some human intent and someone's motivations or desires or what they're trying to accomplish in the world. And I just think it empathizes it, it humanizes it to be able to remember that. And so it helps us to be able to uh, remember as we're looking at reports that tell us, you know, what are the most consumed pieces of uh, learning content or um, what are people uh, or, or what are, uh, where are people browsing to on the website most readily, you can reframe those questions as what do people most want to know and where do people most want to go? I didn't mean for those things to rhyme, but they just do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that you can rehumanize the questions so that you're working to provide human answers to those questions and human solutions as opposed to optimizing the experience based on the data. I'm, I'm a convert for the, from the church of the data-driven. Like I, <laughs> I, think, I think there used to be a real discipline or a real, you know, kind of religious fervor almost about that. And uh, I think data-driven is, um, is useful for very granular kinds of situations. Like if you're trying to help inform a decision, it's very helpful to be data-driven about that decision. But it, you, once you get beyond the microscopic decision, once you're looking at more like strategy or where you're looking at how to really think holistically about a program or about educational opportunities or you know o overall products and services, it becomes really important to come back out to the equivalent level of people and humans and what are they trying to achieve? And you have to marry those up or else you end up, you know, creating these things that don't really feel like they're, they belong in the world of people. And I think that's what we need most from our technology going forward is things that feel like they belong in the world of people. Well, and I think this uh, feeds right into what you're talking about with that, you know, realization that analytics really is giving us insight into to people and their motivations, their desires, their needs. Um, but one thing is that, I mean, you choose to focus on what you call human experience, you know, versus uh, customer experience or user experience. Um, and, and so maybe just say a little bit more about kind of why that distinction is important to you and, and what you think that that shift in terminology and maybe in viewpoint um, yields or, or gives you? Yeah, thanks. I, I think it's a really, uh, it's a subtle distinction in some ways, but it's one that I'm, uh, I insist on. So as I say, I'm a convert from the church of the data-driven. I'm also a convert to the church of the human experience, I mm. suppose, because I feel like uh, what happens so often, at least throughout my career, we have bandied about these terms, customer experience, user experience within business primarily, 
Um, and then, of course, within education, I've, I often hear about learner, student experience, uh, patient experience, and hospitals. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we're talking about the same people. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's it's funny to me because we are all all of those people. We are all customers, users, learners, patients. You know, at, at different times in our lives. And I feel like it, it's too compartmentalized uh, to, to think only about the customer experience or the patient experience or the student experience and not think about, you know, we, we absolutely want to solve problems that pertain to, let's say, the customer experience because we want to make sure that it's easy to buy. That's the equivalent experience. That's the equivalent, you know, metric that tells us. Uh, how successful the the customer experience was. But what it doesn't tell us is how satisfying or meaningful the experience was on a human level. Did the person who was performing the role of customer at that moment come into that experience feeling like uh, that they were frustrated or did they come into it feeling that they, uh, you know, needed something to, to satisfy a problem they were having and did they walk away from it feeling like their problem was satisfied? Did they walk away from it feeling um, like they wanted to rave about the, what they just had happen to their friends? I think that's that's the piece that uh, usually that gets characterized as customer loyalty or customer satisfaction. But I think you can really get a much more holistic sense of that by thinking about human experience because it allows us to transition through all these different contexts and lenses and know that the person who's there behind all of those uh, roles is is fundamentally the same for, is, mm. is the same person. It's all of us, and I think it's important for us to remember that it is all of us. You know, it actually reminds me of a a line of Mary Oliver's poetry where uh, she ends a poem about you know what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? But it's that one life, right? That we're it's we're always living that one life, and it's we really don't you know suddenly put on the, the hat of I'm solely a, a shopper right now, or I'm solely a, a learner right now. Like you're exactly. saying, everything comes to influence our, our experience. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's a, a funny example of that from when uh, years ago, and it's, it's not a particularly learner centric example, but I think the, the parallel is pretty clear. I, I remember uh, buying a, a blender on Amazon. It was a blender that I had been saving for, for a really long time. Cause I, I, kept trying to justify, it's like a $500 blender. And I kept trying to justify why I would need this blender. And, you know, finally I was making smoothies in this blender I had bought from Target for like $25. But every time I was making, you know, green smoothies with like spinach or kale or something, I was having to rock this blender backward and forward (laughs) bodily, you know, to make sure that everything blended up. And finally I was like, all right, it's fine. It's time. I need to buy this blender that's powerful enough to be able to make these green smoothies for me. So I made the investment, the $500 purchase, and it was a thrill to buy it. And I thought, you know, what, what I was expecting to have happen beyond that purchase was that it would start this kind of sequence of upsells, right? Like that Amazon or Vitamix would somehow sense that I had, you know, know that I had bought this blender and be like, congratulations, you have made a really smart decision. Here's some blender books, recipe books that'll help you make the most of your purchase. Here's some accessories like a spatula or something like that that'll help you really enjoy the experience. 
And what I got instead was an email from Amazon, like the next day, maybe that said, since you're interested in the Vitamix blender, here are some other blenders you might be interested in. Like, are you kidding me? Never buying a blender again. (laughs) But it's that sort of short-sighted optimizing for the local experience that I feel like happens across every industry that people don't take into account that there's, there are uh, ways to think of this experience that go well beyond that, whatever the simplest measure is that you can look at in your data. You have to look beyond it. You have to think about the story that someone is part of and be able to create an experience that, that, that feeds into that narrative and really makes the most meaningful experience for, for them and for you. Mm. Well, again, thanks for that example. Um, I, I think it's always good to, to, to look at those real world examples. And like you're saying it so often, you know, you go out to look for something and you, you buy it, you buy that blender. And then, right. Instead of someone thinking about what to compliment it, you just keep getting remarketed more blenders. Right. Right. Not at and all it useful. Kept happening too. I just, I kept shaking my head every time I got an email from Amazon. I'm like, Oh, this is such a missed opportunity. I haven't bought another blender though. I still okay. If you're looking to create learning focused on the human experience, check out our sponsor. Com Partners helps learning businesses conceive, develop, and fulfill their online education strategy. Their solutions begin with Elevate LMS, an award-winning learning platform that provides a central knowledge community and drives learner engagement. To extend the value of Elevate, Com Partners provides a wide range of online education services, including curriculum design, instructional design, fully managed webinars, webcasts, live stream programs, and virtual conferences. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash compartners. And now, back to the interview as Salisa and Kate move from talking about blenders to blended learning. Well, so one of the other points you make in, in your work is about the, the blurring of lines um, and that you, know, you really embrace a, a both-and mentality versus the either-or. And one of the areas that you talk about blending is online and offline experiences. So, you know, more and more what we do offline um, influences what we see online and what we do online then informs what we might do offline. And of course, for me, this seems to hold very true with educational offerings. You know, we used to label things, you know, quote, e-learning or blended learning. Um, and and more and more, it just seems like it's learning, right? That um, And so... What implications in this integration of online and offline, uh, what do you see as the implications for sort of how we live and how we learn? There's so many. I, it's, it's one of the most fascinating areas of my work. And, and I, I wrote the book Pixels in Place in 2016, and, and uh, that was the deep exploration of, of that blending of the, the online and offline experiences. But it still plays in, this whole premise still plays into tech humanist and beyond. So this is a really important area, I think. And it started, actually, uh, my realization of how important this was uh, really came to a head when, um, uh, uh, coincidentally, I had been hired by an educational organization, by, by an association to, uh, to keynote their conference. And it was to speak to um, college admissions counselors uh, about how to create a more meaningful sense of place. So if a, a student, a prospective student was going to be visiting a college, how do you create the sense that this is the place for that person? And what it had, uh, I was working around the idea of brand and how to really um, 
sort of distill the experiences that someone would have in the physical space. Like what's the, what's the uh, sort of legends or mythology mythologies of the place? Like what, do, what stories do people tell about the school and so on? But it also began to occur to me more and more that so much of what was going to be important was understanding those online experiences too. You know, what's the social media brand of, of the place and what kinds of interactions do people tend to have? And what are the hashtags that are relevant? And even when you think about the interaction of the two, like if someone is visiting the campus and they see a statue or a landmark that's pretty famous about that campus, they may want to take a selfie in front of that, that statue. And you might want to offer them somewhere a, a sign that tells them what hashtag they might want to use that then connects them across space and time to the other people who have stood there and taken a selfie at that same statue and, and po posted it on online. So I think there's some very interesting implications even just at that level. But of course, once you actually get into curricula and, and thinking about the act of learning, we can see in, even in a classroom environment that you know whatever an, an educator is lecturing or, or having students do in an interactive sense is going to probably be uh, complemented by whatever the student is self-learning in online searches or in whatever they are uh, supplementing with that experience. So there's even there, there's such a rich blend of those things. So I think you just cannot get away from, uh, from 2019 and beyond. We're in a place where uh, there is ample kind of interactive experience going on all the time. It's an important part of people's lives, and that includes the students, the, the learners, you know, the people, whether they're uh, students in a traditional uh, college or, or other learning context or online, or sorry, ongoing adult learners, you know, that, that's going, that online and offline experience is going to be fully blended. Uh, so it needs to be something that we go into learning development really conscious of and really trying to optimize for, really making sure that that we're aware of that uh, and, and build the experiences accordingly. Hmm. Great. So we're going to switch gears a little bit uh, for this next to last question. It's one that we ask of all our guests on the Leading Learning Podcast, and it's one that focuses on your own personal learning. And the question is, what is one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? That's such a great question, too. Um, and I, I guess this one is, um, this one's kind of tricky because I, I think learning is something obviously that I, I feel we do every day. Right. And, and you made such a great observation about the relationship between meaning and learning. So as, as important as meaning is to me and how that's the lens that I look at the world through, I can easily see how you could substitute the learning lens there. And it, and it all becomes uh, very relevant there too. But I think probably for me, the, the uh, example that comes to mind most readily is I'm part of a, a Facebook group that is a, like a speaker's mastermind. And so I'm, I'm a keynote speaker. That's the majority of what I do. Um, but this is a mastermind or a community of professional speakers. And it's a closed group. Uh, I think there are now about 400 people in it. Uh, and a lot of it is kind of support group function or just community <laughs> social uh, and so on. But there's also an awful lot of learning that takes place within that that group. And I would say that that has been 
truly my most uh, valuable learning experience has been, you know, watching other people bring questions to the group and seeing the discussion that ensues or bringing my own questions to the group and having discussions or participating on my own and answering questions or being part of discussions that are all about, you know, how do we make this field that we all work within the best it can be? How do we bring our best selves to this work? You know, how, what does that look like? And it, the challenge of, uh, of doing that every day and having that, that be part of this community is such an ever-present thing. So I feel like that's the, the format that's been the most, um, more, the, by far the most valuable learning experience is this community, which isn't, you know, obviously like a traditional type of learning environment, but it, even just this Facebook group, this discussion group, has been in and of itself so instructive and so useful in, in terms of an education. Well, and I think that that example t- ties into what we hear so often about the importance of informal learning and the importance of social learning, so tapping into those, those peer networks there. So final question is just if listeners would like to know more about you and your work, where should they go? Yeah, uh, they can definitely find me at koinsights.com, K-O-I-N-S-I-G-H-T-S.com. Uh, that is my uh, business website and all the information about my writing and speaking and consulting and so on is all there. Uh, but in more informally, uh, folks are welcome to find me at my Twitter, uh, which is Kate O. And I'm pretty prolific there. So you'll find me talking about a range of topics there. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for taking time for the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you, Salisa. That concludes the interview with Kate O'Neill. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 204. And the show notes will include the reflection questions for this episode. And those are, one, what is your learning business trying to do at scale and how might technology help? And two, Do you need to refine your view of those you serve so you're less focused on the learner experience and more focused on the human experience? When you check out the show notes, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, Jeff and I would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as that helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. And we'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. That'll put you in the right place. And Salisa and I personally appreciate your rating and review. But more importantly, those reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. We'd be grateful, too, if you would check out our sponsors for this quarter. Visit Compartners at leadinglearning.com slash Compartners. Find out about Authentic Learning Labs at leadinglearning.com slash Authentic. And finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leadinglifelonglearning and share us with others there. However you do it, please spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.